we are going to delve into um, really the wonder of what happened uh, when God was conceived as a baby in the womb of Mary. The purpose of the sermon today is to, to worship uh, our awesome God who came to earth. And let me begin by reading. I am going to read Luke chapter 1, where Gabriel appears to Mary and announces the birth. In the sixth month, and you go, the sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth, uh, the mother of John the Baptist, the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth up north, right? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So he's in the line of the lineage of the kings. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we mark human history on a timeline, and the division is B.C. and A.D., now, I think everybody knows B.C. stands for before Christ. And uh, I think a lot of people are confused what A.D. means. As a kid, I thought it meant, you know, B.C. before Christ, A.D. was already dead. Um, but that's not true because, first of all, if, if that were true, B.C. would be his birth and his death 
would be 33 years later. So we have a 33 year gap. And so, so that's not true. It's also not true because he didn't stay dead very long. So it should, if that's what it's referring to, it could be AAD uh, after, after death. Okay. But AD is actually just Latin uh, anno domini, which means year of our Lord. So, so since the birth of Jesus, every time you write a check and every day reminds us that today is now the year since our Lord has been born. Okay, so interesting. All of human history <clears throat> is divided into B.C. and A.D. Okay, but the timeline is even more cosmic than that. With the coming of Jesus, time is divided into two eternal modes of existence for God. You go, what, what do I mean? Well, in a moment in time, when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, the eternal second person of the Trinity. So Jesus has existed for all eternity as a, a member of the Trinity. When that conception took place, he eternally changed the essence of his existence as a person. He now eternally exists with a human body. So the, from the moment of conception, eternity past, eternity future, at that moment, one of the members of the Godhead has taken on human flesh and will be a human for eternity. So there's cosmic things happening at that point of conception. So here's what I want to do today. I want to blow our minds by thinking of not just the cute baby in the manger, but things from a, the cosmic eternal perspective. I want to take us through four time zones and, and uh, God's existence and Jesus's existence during those four time zones. All right. So first I want to, I want to take us to before time. Now you say, wait a minute, hasn't there always been time? I mean, before creation, there was time, wasn't there? Nope, there was not time. Um, the closest we get to this in scripture in Titus, little pastoral epistle that Paul writes, he begins, Paul, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And then in, in verse two, he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, look at this, promised before the ages began. Um, so there's ages that are marked by time, and now this is a reference to before those ages began. Now, um, I, I admit that you can't prove a whole lot about 
time theory and and so forth from that verse alone. But let's let's take a look at at things from uh, from what we know about physics before the creation of the universe. There was not even space. Okay. You say, well, then where did God exist? <clears throat> Not in space. At the moment of creation, um, that's when time and space began. So a lot of times, if you want to, if, if you say draw a picture of eternity, you would draw an arrow going to the right forever and to the left forever. But that's wrong because before space was created, there was no time because time, matter, and space are dependent on one another. If there's no matter and space, there's no time. So a more accurate picture of the history of time is this. There's a beginning because before there was no time, right? Then at creation, space, time, and matter are created. Okay. Now, um, a question that a little kid will ask, and then it's, it's not just a little kid question, because this is a question that big people should ask too. What, what was God doing before he created us? And wasn't he lonely? Okay, a lot of people just have this picture of God floating in darkness, lonely and sad. Well, um, don't have that picture, okay? Because you, you really can't picture it physically, but you need to remember that God has eternally existed in perfect loving fellowship amongst the three persons of the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity, there's only one God, but the three persons of the Trinity lived in a state of perfect, rapturous, loving fellowship, all right? And now remember that, because I'm going to ask, how would you like to exist in a state of perfect, rapturous, loving fellowship? And we're going to see that that's where we're headed, okay? Um, to, to help understand some of this, or, or maybe to cloud it even further, let's do a, a quick review of the concept of the Trinity, right? In John 1 one, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and we're going to find out that the Word is Jesus, because later on in verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the Word is Jesus. Now look what John says about the Word, and the Word was with God. So this Word is separate, a separate identity from God, but then he says, and the Word was God. So Jesus was both with and was God. Now, some people go, oh, I just can't conceive of what that means. Well, that's, that's good. And some people say, well, that's not what John, John meant or, or 
Um, he didn't he didn't express it properly. Now, wait a minute. If you're writing your magnum opus, the one sentence you're going to get right is your opening sentence, right? So John is communicating something about Jesus. And, and the, the, the best way we can at least picture it, um, there's no physical illustration that, that or, or earthly illustration that communicates the concept that there's only one God, yet he's three persons at the same time. The shamrock doesn't work. The melting ice doesn't work. The egg doesn't work because um, all of them are parts that make up the whole. Here we have one God, the essence of God, who is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Spirit, yet at the same time the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, all right? Um, this is a, kind of a geometric picture. The, now, now people, people get this confused, and sometimes they fall into this this idea, this is called modalism, which is not proper. Modalism pictures it this way. Yep, there's only one God, and sometimes he's God the Father, and sometimes he morphs into Jesus the Son, and sometimes he morphs into the Holy Spirit, but there's only one person. N no, um, that that's what, that, that's called modalism or um, in, in the oneness Pentecostal um, denomination, they teach that there's only one person in God. No. Um, in fact, the, the verse that explodes this idea is John 17. Jesus is praying to God the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice that the prayer itself identifies two persons. Jesus is praying to someone else, okay? Um, and in the prayer, he prays to be restored to a time when the the glory of the Trinity um, was, was at its most intense before the world existed. And there's an I and a you, two distinct persons. So don't picture it as one God putting on three different masks. Picture it as one God as three persons, all at the same time, for all eternity. But now, like you say, what? Why? What's the importance of this? In fact, here's what I'm going to do during connection time, during second hour. I want to ask you, why does this matter? And I'll give you a, a hint. It tells us something about the disposition of God. That for eternity. He has been in a state of joyous love. He's not a lonely individual floating around in darkness. 
He's in a perfectly satisfied, loving relationship for all of eternity. All right. So um, that is era one or time zone one before creation. Now, at the moment of creation, when God said, let there be, and he brought the universe into existence, things changed, okay? Time begins. Matter matters, okay? And humans are created. Now, a question that, again, a little child would ask, or we should ask, is this. Why did God create? Now, most people assume that God created because he was lonely. But wait a minute. We just established that he wasn't lonely. He's lived in a state of perfect loving fellowship, rapturous fellowship amongst the members of the Godhead. So here's, here's the point I want you to get. God did not create us out of any lack in him or any need in him. Well, why then would he create us? The answer is out of an overflow of love. Not out of need, not out of lack, but out of love, God says, I want those humans to experience what I am experiencing. Okay? So the the, the lesson of the time zone of creation is it, it reflects God's motive of love and giving and wanting his creatures to experience this rapturous joy, okay? God is fundamentally a good God, a giving God, a loving God. Now you say, well, what about sin and wrath and all? The, we're just talking about at the moment of creation, his his character of giving and wanting to bring us into fullness of joy is his motive. And, and what this should cause us to do is what David did in Psalm 8. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, right? D David looks at the grandeur of God and the glory of God, and we look at the, the perfect loving fellowship of God, and then he creates us, and we should respond, what are we? What, why would, who are we that this God would care about us, right? So that's, that's the lesson about God from creation, first before time, that he exists in perfect contentment and love. At creation, his motive is not need, but love. And then let's go to, to the third time zone, the incarnation, All right? So here's the before time, 
Here he creates us. And now in the middle of history, 2000 years ago, boom, he becomes man. The second person of the Trinity, the son, becomes human. Okay. Now, um, this is this is where it can get complicated. I, I don't want to overwhelm us with a bunch of theology. At the same time, I don't want to leave things so simple that we learn nothing. Okay. So so here I want us to look at Philippians 2 6. It says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this word form has thrown some people off because um, they go, oh, well, form is just the form. It's not the reality. No, uh, a form, okay, you can you can make a, uh, a uh, statue in the form of a dog, or there's a dog that's in the form of a dog. One is just the form. The other is the form with the reality, okay? This is clearly speaking of Jesus in the form of God, but because he is equal with God, it's not the empty form, it's the reality of God. So he's in the form. What this is emphasizing is his mode of existence, glorious, eternal God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born, here's our here's Christmas, in the likeness of men. So again, be careful that you don't say, oh, he took on the form, just the, uh, the external, he's just a paper mache. No, just like the form here uh, is that of actual God, he empties himself and takes the actual essence of a human, okay? Um, now, it's important to make this point. Emptied. He did not empty himself of his divinity or any of his divine attributes, but of his glory, right? The emptying was of his glory existing only in the form of, of God. You, you could say it this way. He emptied himself not by losing anything, but by taking on something, human nature. Okay. Again, to use the dog analogy, let's say you love dogs and you have the capacity to remain human, but take on the nature of a dog. You are, in, in essence, emptying yourself of your human glory, but you're still human but in the real form of a real dog, okay? That's the emptying that's going on, okay? Now, the, the wonder that I want us to, to, to worship God over is this. The moment he took on human nature, the moment he was conceived, his, his being was changed for eternity. In other words, Jesus 
will remain human without losing his divinity for all eternity. Think about this. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people say, well, okay, God became man and he got that over with for 33 years and then he went back to heaven and now he's a spirit floating around. No, no. Here's, here's what happened in uh, Acts 1.9. And when he had said these things, this is Jesus in his human body. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus in his resurrected human body ascends into heaven. But notice what the angel says. The angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The same way. He left in a human body. He's coming back in a human body. Guess what? Right now he's in a human body, in a glorified human body. And when he comes back, he will be in a human body. And for the rest of eternity, he will be in a human body. Okay. Now. Um, let's, I, I, I don't mean to blow our minds, but I do mean to blow our minds. Let's try to, to, uh, if I had a chalkboard, I would, I would draw this out, but let's, let's do some, uh, some thinking about what it means that God becomes man without losing his godness. Okay. So here's, here's the Trinity. There's one God, and this is the divine essence here, the divine nature that is shared by these three persons. Here's the person of the Son, Jesus. At the moment of conception, here's what happens. Human nature, 100% true human nature, is added to the person of the Son. Okay? He's only one person, but he's got a human nature and a divine nature. So the formula is this. In the Trinity, God is one in essence, three in person. In the person of Jesus, Jesus is one in person, two in nature. And now, to, to make things even more complicated, there are times that the person of Jesus acts out of his divine nature, okay? And, and if he acts out of his divine nature, all of his attributes are available. By the way, when the little baby is in the manger, he's also omnipresent throughout the universe. He's omniscient in his divine nature. He's omnipotent, all-powerful as this weak little baby, but he's not acting through his divine nature but he's, he, is, he, hasn't, he hasn't given those things away. And then most of the time when we read in the Gospels, he is acting through his human nature. He's localized. He's in a body, right? He can learn. So the omniscient God can learn. He grew in wisdom, right? And he is limited. On a journey, he is tired. He is thirsty. He falls asleep in a boat. Okay. Now you go, man, that's a, that is a lot to keep straight. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, and, and one way 
to try to, to keep it straight is by understanding some of the, the uh, heresies that have been corrected about the person of Jesus throughout church history. So let me, let me just, and, and I don't expect you to grasp all this right now, but um, the, the sermon will be up on, on uh, the website and there are notes, but let me, let me cover five heresies, okay? Docetism was one of the first heresies about Jesus that developed, and it, it was kind of springing out of this thing called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the idea that the spiritual realm is good and the flesh or the physical realm is bad. Therefore, Jesus was only human in appearance. So the picture here would be um, he's God, but underneath this sheet, um, the sheet is only a cloak of humanity. It's he's not really human. It's just a, he's in appearance as a human. Well, the the problem with docetism is, is this: um, for him to be our sacrifice, for him to be our substitute, he needs to be really human, not just a cloak of humanity, and. Uh, to be our high priest. And in Hebrews, it says that he is able to sympathize with our weakness and with our temptations in every way. Um, For that to happen, he has to really be human, not just a ghost of a human. So docetism was rejected as heresy. Then um, there was Arianism, which Arius said, that Jesus, yes, he was this powerful spiritual being, um, but he was created. All right, so the picture here is um, that there's a, a divine spark in a uh, a creaturely uh, in a creature, okay, but he was created. Now, this really Arianism is the error of uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not believe Jesus was divine, right? Um, If he was created, he is not eternal. And if he's not eternal, he's not God. So Arianism was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, uh, 325. Okay. Then another heresy is Apollinarianism. Um, He's human on the outside but divine on the inside, like a Tootsie Pop, right? Um, so, so this is kind of a version of docetism, um, but, but the idea here is he's a certain percentage human and then a certain percentage divine, okay? So let's say he's 53% human and 47% divine. Well, guess what? If you're 47% divine, then you're not fully divine. And if you're 53% human, you're not fully human. So uh, the Greek term is a tertium quid, a third thing, okay? We want to maintain his full humanity and full divinity by, uh, by falling into Apollinarianism. You lose both and you create a third thing. So Apollinaria, Apoll, uh, Apollinarianism was rejected. Then, then a guy named Nestorius, um, he wanted to maintain 
full divinity and full humanity, but his error was that he said Jesus is not one person. He's two persons, okay? Well, the problem with that is never in Scripture does anyone, God or the apostles or the Paul's letters, never is Jesus pictured or addressed as two persons. He is always just one person, okay? Then, um, finally, uh, monophysitism. Christ was not fully human. So this is uh, kind of a version of Apollinarianism, kind of a version of Docetism. Um, but again, it's a, it's a compromising of the two full natures. But what's important about monophysitism is the Council of Chalcedon met, 451, and they put some verbiage to trying to scripturally define the person of Jesus. And here's some of the verbiage that they said in trying to uh, communicate the essence of, of the two natures existing in one person, they use these adverbs. Um, his natures are inconfusedly, yet unchangeably, yet indivisibly and inseparably united. Now, um, if you think about these too long, too long, they don't make things any clearer, but they tell us where we can't go. I mean, imagine the idea of something not being confused, but not being divided. Those seem like opposites. I think in the past I've used an illustration where I brought a, a bottle with water and oil in it. And, and, and when you look at it, um, the, the water and the oil are separated. They're divided. So that's not a great illustration because he, the two natures are not divided. They're indivisible. So then I shook the water and the oil, and it all mixed together, and that also is not a good illustration, because now they're confused. So it's a, it's a physical illustration showing what you shouldn't think of when you think about the two natures together in one person. You go, well, that doesn't help. Well, um, this is kind of what you call negative theology. Don't believe this, don't believe this, don't believe this, but you're left with holding these things in tension, okay? But here's the, here's the, the worship point. The moment Jesus was conceived, humanly conceived, in the womb of Mary, he took on human nature eternally. Now, again, what should our response be that the glorious God takes on human nature and human form for the rest of his existence? I think our response should be, what is man that you are mindful of him? Again, the son of man that you care for him, that you become one of him. 
right? Now, one last wonder, and that is the fourth, the fourth time zone is this. So we had before time, Trinity existing in perfect happiness. Then in creation, he uh, chooses to create us out of overflowing love. Then at the incarnation, one of the members of the Trinity takes on human form for the rest of eternity. But, but right now, we are in this state of, uh, of fallenness where sin has entered into the world and people are in rebellion against God. Um, so he comes and he, he's born, but he also dies on the cross to pay for our sins. And all who believe in him are forgiven. And for a lot of people, that's all they think about. Good, I'm forgiven. It's all taken care of. Um, I don't have to go to hell. Well, that's all true, but it's much better than that. Let's introduce the idea of recreation when Christ comes back and he recreates the world. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new heaven and in the new earth, we are resurrected from the dead and given glorious bodies, glorious resurrected bodies, okay, sinless existence. And the best point is this. We live in that perfect fellowship that we talked about from the very beginning that the Trinity uh, existed in, all right? So, so here, back to John 17, remember Jesus prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So um, Jesus talking to God, remembering that state of rapturous a uh, uh, fellowship that he has, but now that's that's his prayer for himself. Now later in verse twenty four, he prays for us. Father, I desire that they, okay, the apostles and everybody who will believe in him, also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, my desire is that you would bring them into this glory that we had in eternity past. Peter says something mind-blowing in 2 Peter. He, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, we, we may become, look at this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, what does it mean that we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, it, it can't mean we become divine, okay? 
but it can mean, and it does mean that we will participate in the love and the joy and the satisfaction and the glory that the members of the Trinity experienced before creation. That changes everything about the reality. You know, the difference between you as a Christian and the average other person driving down the highway, they don't cherish these things. They don't even have these things. But you have the hope and the promise, promise, right, that your eternal future is in the fellowship of the Trinity. And again, what's our response? What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, that you created him, that you redeemed him, and that you bring him in to your perfect fellowship? Christmas should never be the same if we understand all these things. Let me, let me pray. Lord, our minds can hardly grasp these things, but I pray, Lord, that you would take these precious promises and lift us above the day-to-day problems and just the short-term thinking of the here and now and remind us that you created us to know you and then ultimately to be transformed to enter into that fellowship, that perfect fellowship. Um, Lord, what a great Christmas present we have. Um, Thank you for changing our eternity. And Lord, we respond with worship. In Jesus' name, amen.